Breaking news. Can I get a volunteer? Over half of rural Tennessee hospitals no longer deliver babies. Breastfeeding may be free, but not necessarily BPA-free. The New York Times reports that 75% of new mothers have plastic found in their breast milk. And an unexpected fetal face-off. Nicolas Cage claims memories of seeing human expressions while in the womb. We're here to help you get through it all. Our goal is to deliver a better future one healthy baby at a time. We're the Green Ducks, a couple of OBGYNs talking about the environment and how it affects women's health and babies, you know, birth outcomes. I'm Bruce Picard, an OBGYN in Southern California. I love the sound of the ocean. That's why I live near it. And I don't believe in climate science because it's not a belief system. It's simply our best understanding of our current and future reality. And like any other field of science related to our health, it makes a lot of sense to pay attention. And I'm Nate DiNicola, a perpetually post-call OBGYN in Newport Beach and the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies and a part-time body surfer who's really looking forward to getting back out in the ocean this summer. Now, that kind of brings us to this episode, which is bun in a crazy hot oven. As the summer months arrive, we know that Everybody will be preparing for extra heat, but it's especially important for pregnant women to know what to do to kind of manage this extra stress on their body. To help get us through those questions, we have uh, the guest joining us, Miri Marshall. She is the meteorologist for WUSA Channel 9 out of Washington, D.C. She has been leading uh, the national effort on covering the intersection between heat and health. And so uh, we're looking forward to talking to her uh, in, in depth about what that means for preparing for summer. Uh, but first, before we get there, let's review those headlines. Bruce, what did you think about the volunteer state not having many volunteers for labor and delivery? Right. It's kind of a callback to episode two, where we interviewed Dr. Kristen Lyerly about the pregnancy care crisis in Wisconsin. This article in the Chattanooga Times, a paper you might have not seen, reported that over half of rural Tennessee hospitals don't deliver babies anymore, which is going to make pregnant women travel long distances just to get prenatal care they need or pregnancy-related emergency services. And remember that, Nate, you and I have talked a couple of times on these episodes already about how sudden and severe uh, obstetric emergencies can occur. And how uh, really not good that is that these uh, emergency services can't be provided uh, in a hurry for people that need it. And this is happening in Tennessee, which is a state that has the second highest rate of rural hospital closures in the country. And it also is a state with high rates of maternal deaths, especially for black moms, and high rates of premature birth. So it's not happening in the best place. But unfortunately, Tennessee is not going to be the only one to have issues like this with the lack of access to prenatal care. Uh, for one thing, there was a study that was reported recently in NPR that found that over three quarters of doctors uh, either established or in training uh, when they were surveyed said they wouldn't consider working in states where abortion bans are in place, which presently is over half of the states in this country. And who can blame these doctors? Frankly, providing accepted standard of care treatment could lead actually to heavy fines and or imprisonment. 
And again, the women that are affected are not just women that want abortion care, but women that have a miscarriage or a non-viable pregnancy. And even if there are not health professionals around to take care of them, women needing pap smears or breast exams or birth control in those states, they're going to suffer as well. Not only bleeding or infectious complications, but potentially delayed or missed cancer diagnoses and, ironically, more unintended pregnancies if they're not able to get birth control that they would have wanted. Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, we need our hospitals. Uh, and pregnant women need their hospitals close and open 24-7. So uh, it seems like it may be a rural story, but we, we know better. We know this is really a canary in the coal mine situation where the the, the stressed healthcare system, particularly the stressed labor and delivery systems, are, are really beyond their capacity. And we may be seeing it first here in rural Tennessee, but this would apply to uh, really the, the entire country is kind of at risk for this same, this same uh, process or phenomenon. So, Nate, how about this uh, story about breast milk with plastic? I, I felt so bad uh, having to report this because uh, we just had my mom on last episode with the, the Mother's Day episode, and she, she has you know, decades of experience as a lactation expert consultant and, uh, you know, really was talking up the benefits of breastfeeding as a much purer alternative or a much purer way to uh, feed babies rather than formula, which can be sitting in containers that are plastic and could be heated up in plastic containers and could have all kinds of toxins you're, you're not going to get in breast milk. And then here we have it, you know, what, what can I, what's a mom to do? You know, she almost can't escape the, the microplastics that are seeping everywhere into our system. Uh, I, I guess the main point to draw here is that the, the toxins that would be found in the breast milk, in this case, it was uh, 30 women in Italy were tested and three quarters had, had that present. It still is much less than what would be in formula. But we have to kind of be thinking a layer beyond uh, when we want to avoid some of these uh, toxic exposures. You can't just be looking at, say, the baby bottle not being plastic or, or the water bottle mom's using. You have to also consider where the food is coming from that you're eating. So, like, is the seafood you're eating coming from oceans that are filled with plastic? Because it gets back to us one way or another. Yeah, the plastic is such a ubiquitous exposure now. And, and back in the middle of the last century, our society really fell in love with plastics because of their their wonderful durability, but it's this essentially immortality of these products that now has become their greatest threat to us and to really all of life. There are stories of more and more animals being adversely affected, and we are amongst them. So not a happy story. Well, plastic and breast milk was certainly a surprise, but probably the biggest surprise this headlines was uh, Nicolas Cage and what he claimed he saw in the womb. What'd you think of that, Bruce? <laughs> well, it was on an episode of Stephen Colbert's show a couple of weeks ago, and, and Colbert was giving him these big, broad questions. And one of them was, what's your earliest memory? And uh, Nick came up with this story. He told Stephen that he thought maybe he could remember seeing faces, almost like faces in the dark before he was born, so inside his mom's tummy. And he acknowledged that this was maybe a little bit far out and that maybe what he was really thinking of was that he could sense vocal vibrations coming in through the womb before birth. And we do know that 
that babies start to hear things outside uh, and inside the uterus starting at around 28 weeks. One of my best friends uh, created a prenatal program based upon the positive associations that those sounds can have uh, for babies once they're born. They're very calming, like all things that remind babies of being in the womb. So he has a program called A Sound Beginning. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But uh, it, it just underlines the fact that maybe Nick wasn't that far off. Maybe he actually does somehow have a sense of sounds that he heard before he was born. And maybe the rest of us do, too. We just aren't aware of them. Well, whenever I see Nicholas Cage in a headline, I, I know I'm going to be thinking about something differently and <laughs> and always kind of pushed, uh, pushed to a limit. He has that, that rare talent. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's ever checked uh, the baby's heart tones with a Doppler or something with acoustic stimuli sees how instantly the babies respond and sometimes it's even hard to keep them on the monitor because they, they are moving all around in the mom's belly uh, in response to the, to the acoustics. So uh, something to consider there, although uh, I'm not sure I ever imagined the babies were thinking about what face was applying that Doppler, but, uh, but who knows? Maybe we have more to learn. Anyway, uh, in an effort to maintain our quasi-journalistic integrity, I do want to uh, issue a small update to a story we told in episode one about clear air turbulence. And the particular flight that, that prompted the story was when the ex-White House staffer Dana Hyde tragically died uh, during some pretty severe turbulence over the U.S. a couple of months ago. But follow-up does suggest that the story is a bit more complicated than was originally reported, that it might have involved not only just bad turbulence, but also a mechanical problem of the plane, and maybe the pilots didn't react to it quite correctly. Uh, it's it's clearly a story still in evolution. But importantly, this does not invalidate the larger point, that is that climate scientists are predicting that so-called clear air turbulence which kind of comes out of nowhere and can be rather severe, is likely to increase because of climate change. So that story is still intact. Yeah, and this is what we often see when we talk about an environmental exposure. It's not solely that the environment was the cause of something, but its contribution has been uh, perhaps underappreciated for a while. And now we're learning more and more about how the environment, as one of the hits, contributes to uh, something else that creates these bad outcomes. And we'll be back very soon with our interview. And I do want to move us into the, the uh, arena of heat. I want to wish you both happy National Heat Awareness Day today. We happen to be recording on May 26th. And I don't know, I, I, <laughs> I have to admit, I don't think I knew that there was such a holiday today, but apparently... I didn't uh, either. <laughs> How about that? You know, I think maybe uh, the powers that be must have known, Nate, that we were recording today. This is yet another change we're causing in society here at Green Docks. We're, we're so meta. We've raised awareness about the Awareness Day. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> there we go. But let's talk a little bit about heat. Uh, again, anybody who's paying any attention at all certainly has noticed that things are warming up around us and climate scientists certainly worldwide have documented unequivocal evidence of this unprecedented warming which is approaching one and a half degrees centigrade now and the way we ought to think about that is not in terms of air temperature but more like body temperature since this is a you know nature is a complex and vast system 
But when you add that kind of heat, it is essentially taking uh, nature from 98.6 to over 101 degrees. The endless burning of fossil fuels has given nature a fever, effectively. And you think of how you feel when you have a fever of 101 or more, and what would happen to you if that just never went away? In addition, adding to that, a couple of weeks ago, the World Meteorological Organization said that because of the combination of climate change and the coming El Nino, there's about a 98% chance that the next five years are going to be the warmest ever recorded. And this is not just average temperatures, but more frequent and severe heat waves. And also one of the things that I've learned that I think is kind of interesting is it isn't just happening rapidly in places like uh, Phoenix or Texas in the southwest where you'd expect it. But more rapid warming is happening in places also like Burlington, Vermont, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, even Boise, Idaho. This is an, an equal opportunity scorching. And as far as health impacts, there's a whole lot of research now clarifying uh, how heat affects our health, not just extreme heat, but also cold, increasing humidity, which is part of climate change, and a lack of nighttime cooling. Uh, and of course, these effects are amplified uh, for people living or working in downtown areas that lack the benefits of ventilation or green space, so-called urban heat islands, that can be 10 or 15 degrees warmer than neighborhoods around them, and also those portions of the population most at risk, older people, the poor, the uninsured, those with chronic illnesses, children. And Nate, I think you also have another important segment of, of the population that as OBGYNs we're particularly concerned with. Yeah, we're in the business of delivering miracles. And uh, the, the pregnant women are, are getting overheated. You know, the, the, bun is, the bun is a very hot oven. Uh, when we were looking at uh, Bruce and I doing our research and our systematic review, we, uh, we wanted to look at how heat was affecting pregnancy all over the country, you know, not just in those certain pockets that were probably understood to be exceptionally warm. And uh, while our study overall included like 32 million births, uh, the heat studies were, were a smaller subset of that, but there were still millions, millions of deliveries we analyzed. And it became clear that the ex exposure to extreme heat during the pregnancy did significantly increase the risk for things like preterm birth, which has all kinds of risks attached to it, uh, low birth weight, and even stillbirth. Uh, additionally, those, those risks were greatest for uh, some of the, the communities of color. Uh, black moms were most at risk for some of these outcomes. And so we have, we have a lot more to talk about when it comes to preparing for the summer than, say, uh, you know, just, just knowing what the temperature is. There's, there's a lot within that. And uh, Mary uh, and I met last year when, when she was taking the lead, I think, in, in kind of the national landscape on, on this messaging, uh, making a segment on not just increasing summer months, which she and I felt very clearly as we were doing the interview in D.C. Uh, in, in the park, but, but also what comes along with, with that heat and the health risks of it. Uh, so we're so delighted that, that, that Mary led that piece. And now we get to talk to the expert on heat today about some of our, our burning questions. <laughs> burning questions. Yeah. Uh, uh, listen, I can tell you, uh, having been uh, the only person on this podcast who's been pregnant, I can tell you uh, it's, uh, it, it has its own challenges. You don't need heat to add to it. Uh, so uh, definitely the word needs to get out uh, about this. You already feel extra weight. I went from like uh, 99 pounds to maybe 140 something. So you've got extra weight, an extra person. You don't really need the extra heat. So very important to get this word out. 
So Mary, did did your OBGYNs or anywhere in your prenatal care, did they talk about risks associated with heat or other kind of environmental topics? No. Um, no, like I said, you guys are the only doctors that I've actually talked to that actually know about this. Um, on visits, I've just tried to gingerly, you know, let them know like, hey, climate change might cause this in some of your patients, you know, here's where you may find more information. Um, but I know that they are swamped. I, I know that you guys, you know, you're not sitting around twiddling your thumbs. You have a lot going on. So it's, you know, them having to be deliberate about taking the time and the interest to re-educate themselves because many of them, it probably was not a part of their regular curriculum in school uh, when they were in medical school. So uh, Nate, probably not even for you, I'm thinking, no, so. not at all. This this is an emerging topic. Uh, and actually, I, I was curious about that in, in your career development. Uh, did you, when you were deciding to become a meteorologist, first, I'm kind of curious how you, how you decided to, to choose that, that career. But also, was, was climate change already kind of unavoidable here, like on your radar? Or was it something that emerged yeah. d during your training? Now, listen, uh, now I'm going to be telling my age. Uh, it was like, don't say climate. Um, don't say climate change. It wasn't even taught in school. Did I learn about the regular climate, natural variation? Sure, but that wasn't even a part of the regular curriculum. And I found myself to be frustrated having to go to outside sources to learn about climate change. I'm like, I got to get them. I'm, I'm as a tele. Let me just back up a second. As a television meteorologist, I'm one of the only meteorologists that a person may ever come across in their life. There are tons of meteorologists with different specialties, but I'm on the front lines. I have to be knowledgeable about everything that will come our way because my main job is to protect life and property. Yes, I wear fun dresses, put on makeup. That's cute, but that's not my job. It's to protect people and give them information to protect themselves. So I was very disappointed and frustrated that it, it you know, initially was not included um, in my educational studies. So now you ask me how I became a meteorologist. I'm in the business of truth. So here we go. Um, to be honest, weather was not my first love, but became the love of my life. Um, it's like, you know, you're at a party. Maybe this isn't the guy you would normally sit down and talk to. But once you talk to him, you're like, oh, my gosh, you're actually kind of awesome. So what happened was I initially set out to be uh, you know, a journalist. I started off in journalism. Uh, my career goal was to be an anchor. And I would just volunteer in the newsroom to fill in for whether if, let's say, somebody went on vacation. I was like, hey, I'll help out if somebody's on vacation. But, you know, aside from that, you know, I'm doing news. And so it happens that uh, we had a weather opening. Some guy left and a new guy started. And the job was to be a weather anchor on the weekends or a meteorologist on the weekends and a reporter during the weekday. So he shows up Saturday, Sunday, does the weather. That's great. Monday morning, he calls our boss and says, hey, I don't want to report. I just want to do weather. I'm not coming in today. In which she politely fired him. And she's at this point scrambling like, okay, I need a meteorologist. I need a meteorologist now. I need one today. Miri, didn't you say you wanted to volunteer? I was like, I said to help on vacation. I didn't say to do the job. I don't know the first thing about weather. I just thought I would help a little bit, um, which is not uncommon sometimes in smaller markets. And I was in El Paso, Texas at the time. She was like, I need you to do it. And I was like, okay, fine. So luckily I had... A chief meteorologist who was so nurturing and so helpful, she sat me down, literally held my hand and taught me the ropes. And she was looking, she was like, look, they're actually 
kind of a natural at this. You should consider switching careers to weather. I, I'm telling you, I, I think you'd be good at this. I was like, I don't know, I don't know. So eventually I decided, well, I'm going to go back to school for it because I really need to know what I'm talking about, uh, whether I stay in it or not. And after the first year, she was like, oh, my gosh. She was like, I can see a difference in you. I see a difference in your knowledge. You should absolutely pursue this. And from there, I was like, okay, weather it is. <laughs> so uh, that is the true reason how I got into weather. It's not the traditional path, but it is what led me here. And I'm so happy to be here. And the work that you're doing is at such an important time because I'm sure that, that the kinds of weather that you're reporting on now and, and the extremes are just getting more and more, uh, I mean, the word unprecedented is getting really worn out, but I, I just can't imagine that it 20 is. years ago, 30 years ago, uh, reporting on the weather was, was, uh, was, as, was either as interesting or as important as it has become. Yeah, it's um it we've definitely seen a lot of extremes. Like even here, April alone, our average high temperature, let's say seventy on any given day in April, we had like eight days of temperatures in the eighties. I'm not talking barely touching eighty, I'm talking eighty eight degrees. I'm like, Okay. I, I see you, Mother Nature, seventies in the in in February in DC. Excuse me, that's supposed to be our coldest month. What do you mean, seventies? Yeah. So we're seeing it. You know, we say climate change and we're speaking of it as if it's something that's coming in the future. It's it's kind of already here. And we just know that there will be more, you know, repercussions to come. So um, I, I have definitely noticed a lot of changes in my career from when I first started until now, which I won't say when because, you know, a lady shouldn't tell her age. But uh, <laughs> I have definitely noticed uh, a lot of things are are different now. And the conversation around it has changed as well. I want to uh, focus on one of the things that I know is changing, which is humidity. And w and I had mentioned a few minutes ago the significance of humidity and the fact that that goes along with a warming atmosphere. It, we do know that the body cools itself off primarily through sweating, and sweating doesn't work very well when it's humid out. Everybody's been uh, in some kind of humidity at some point, and if you've ever traveled to Miami or been in Hawaii, you've experienced the fact that you can get out of the shower and feel fresh and five minutes later walking around, you feel like you haven't had a shower in months, that humidity just makes it impossible to cool off. So how do people now, with this increase in humidity we're having, really know what the temperature is going to feel like and how much risk is associated with it? Because it's not just the degrees Fahrenheit we're talking about anymore. No, it's not. Um, and, you know, obviously you're right. It's harder for your body to cool itself uh, when you have the heat and the humidity combined, especially when you get temperatures of around 90 with excess humidity. It becomes very uncomfortable for you and for your body to try to fight that off. So there are two ways that we can look at how hot it feels to your body, how your body is perceiving it. Um, we have the heat index, which takes into account how hot it feels if you're in the shade. And then we have the wet bulb global temperature, which talks about how hot it feels when you are in direct sunlight. Obviously, the wet bulb global temperature is going to be your true factor of, you know, this is how hot it is. Standing in the direct sun, it takes in, you know, into account solar radiation, uh, humidity, cloud cover, wind. It takes in so many other factors to really figure out how much stress is really going to be on your body when it's hot like that. Now, the wet bulb global temperature is not widely used. Um, there is talk about it needs to be, you know, for now it's used for outdoor workers, you know, construction workers, 
Uh, I think people in the military even use it. And if you even go to essentially the National Weather Service's website, it's going to say experimental. Um, and I think there, there may be a few things they're still trying to figure out with it, but it's, it's still there. You can see it. Uh, so, but more widely, we use the heat index, which is just the temperature and the humidity combined, because essentially those are the two forces that are working against you and you cooling off but uh the information is available for you there's even a heat index calculator you can figure it you know out like oh this is how hot my body feels Uh, by the way your body obviously doesn't care what the actual temperature is it's about the perception obviously that your body is feeling um out there so i've had you know there's there's what we learn in the medical textbooks and what i see in weather and then there are those lessons that are not in the textbooks I'll, i'll give you an example we know that obviously can infect people who are minorities, you know, people who may not have the resources to turn on the air conditioner, but it really can impact anybody. In fact, it happened to a reporter at our station. She was out covering um, just a regular story, not necessarily. I don't think she was even covering heat. And I want to say she fainted um, because of being in the heat, out and about, running around, you know, getting interviews in the heat. And I'm so proud of our station's response. After that, we said, hey, if you have a live shot, you, if, unless it's like something really catastrophic going on behind you, please record that while it's still cool and then come back to the building and cool off. Do not stay out there standing around in the heat just for a live shot for the sake of it. Take breaks to cool yourself off. They're very proactive about get the story, but stay safe while you do it. Um, and then there was my cousin. Um, he was driving, I think at the time, a delivery truck and He's riding around the truck in New Orleans, of course, if you want humidity. You don't have to go to Miami. You can go right to New Orleans. There's plenty of it uh, by this uh, sauna called the Gulf of Mexico. It's just waiting to uh, spew out some humidity. Anyway, he's driving around the truck, and um, he's telling his mom, like, oh, mom, I got this headache. She's like, all right, you know, pop a Tylenol. Mom, I did that. It's still not working. Uh, I just got this headache. Take him to the urgent care. Heat heat exhaustion. You got a heat-related illness. So no, you know, simply popping something is not going to work. You have to cool your body off. You have to be treated for that. So the thing about heat that we just, that's harder for us as communicators to get the word out is that it's such a sneaky little devil, right? Sure, I can see the rain. I can feel the rain, right? Uh, I can anticipate that snow. Yeah, all right, I can see it. But heat, I can't see it. And, And by the time you figure it out, it's too late. It's already got you. So we, we really try to harpen on it. I know, you know, we, and we don't just tell people like, hey, you know, drink water because people are like, I'm not an idiot. And also I'm in D.C. I have the most Ph.D. and master's degree holding people out here. So telling them that will make them tune you out. I, I do have to take it a step further and tell them how it impacts your body who's most at risk. Here's how you can tell how hot your body's going to feel. I really dig into that a lot to try to give people the info they need to know to keep themselves safe. So that, that's a really good point for you know all of our listeners who either are, are pregnant themselves or maybe want to get pregnant or have somebody in the family who's, who's pregnant. Um, what, what have you learned about communicating those health risks when you talk about heat at, during this time that you've been, been covering the topic? Well, like I said, I've, I've learned that I've had to go in a bit deeper than just saying drink water and, you know, get into the shade and cool off. Those things I feel like are common sense and they're good reminders, but can sometimes maybe insult someone's intelligence. <laughs> they're like, duh, I know that. Uh, so, again, I have to talk about 
how it impacts your body. I have to throw out stats. I have to unfortunately remind them of deadly heat waves. Um, I don't want to be morbid, but I have to make them think like, hey, I really could be caught off guard. I have to explain the different levels of heat-related illnesses and like, hey, are you starting to have that headache? Is it not going away? Are you starting to feel nauseous after you've been exposed to the heat? You should probably get yourself checked out. So um, people appreciate explanation and knowledge now, right? Everything is about show me how or explain this. Uh, that's why, you know, TikTok is blowing up and, and Instagram. So I have to take it a step further than just saying it's going to be 95, but feel like 105. I've, I've got to dig into this is how you can be impacted. What I tell people all the time is listen to your body. When you get in the heat, your body's going to talk to you. I need you to listen to it. So that is how I try to get through to people. And one of the big risks, unfortunately, that's attached to our climate change is lack of nighttime cooling. And we know that the body needs temperatures to come down below 80 degrees in order for it to recover uh, from the day's heat. And I'm thinking in particular for people that either don't have air conditioning or really can't afford to use it, or even people living in areas where it's not safe out, uh, to leave your windows unlocked uh, and open overnight, uh, these people are are really missing out on the chance to recover from the day's heat. So uh, is there anything that you say that, that addresses that? Because one of the things that we've been hearing is that nighttime cooling is even more affected than daytime temperatures. Yeah, it's harder. It's getting harder for the atmosphere to release that heat back to space. So in the daytime, we get heat in. At night, we're supposed to give it back, right? Because we, we're trying to have balance. That's all the atmosphere is is ever trying to do is balance. You know, even with hurricanes, sadly, as deadly as they are, they are they are necessary because they are trying to balance out the heat around the globe. So uh, with that, with the nighttime temperatures, it's especially troubling for me living in a historic city like D.C. where you have a lot of old buildings that don't have air conditioning that were built at a time where people thought, yeah, we don't need air conditioning. You know, and you're right. You can't open that up. And then also if you live in, you know, D.C. is a city. Think about people who live in New York and concrete cities where it's going to be harder to cool off there anyway just because of all the structures that they have. So. These are concerns that I have, and we have done multiple stories about people who live in um, Montgomery County was one of the areas where there were some people living, and we've gone into those buildings to do reporting, and we had like a heat gun that showed a temperature 80 degrees, and then you can't even cool off at night, so when does your body get a chance to recover? Um, I would say that I hope in the future that that legislate, you know, legislatures start to get together and say, hey, we're going to have to start trying to, you know, require that people put air conditioning in, not people or landlords, say, so to speak, or big apartment complexes. Um, not that I'm trying to get political at all. I'm just saying that there has to be something, you know, and maybe you offer those people uh, some money to make those repairs or a tax break of some sort, some sort of incentive, because people will continue to suffer. Um, we are already, we've already warmed up since the 1800s by about two degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, we will continue to see that warm warming if we don't slow things down, if we don't reduce our emissions, uh, if we don't reduce the greenhouse gases that get caught up in the atmosphere. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely tough to see that. Um, and I mean, I don't know. Is it just me? Does it not shock you that it's it's 2023 and we and we still don't have air conditioning everywhere? I'm like, so we got electric cars, cars that can drive themselves, but. Air conditioning in every house? Yeah, no, we don't have that. Mm -mm. We, we've got robots that can deliver coffee to you across anywhere in the city. 
Right. But, but it's gonna if it's an iced latte, it's gonna be melted by the time it you know gets to your doorstep. Pretty much. Uh, uh, and what you're what you're bringing up is is so important, uh, not just in that it seems sort of such a uh, obvious thing we could do with with our current technology, but there's data behind it too. Uh, one of the studies that we often reference when we talk about this looked at uh, uh, a group of like like thousands of people in California, not pregnant. This is outside of pregnancy. But they looked at their risk of hospital admission for multiple causes, things like uh, heart-related events, uh, respiratory uh, causes, renal failure, generally speaking, heat-exacerbated thing, uh, heat exhaustion. And they found that you know, after accounting for uh, things you can't account for, income, um, the, the regions of it living, if you, if you had any form of air conditioning in the home, the risk of those hospital admissions dropped by about half. So there really is a good suggestion this it works. You know, this this cooling effect helps to at least mitigate uh, some of the health risks. And uh, we've been very encouraged by working closely with um, Representative Lauren Underwood's office out of uh, Illinois on the Protecting Moms and Babies from Climate Change Act, which calls for some of the things that, you, that you're, you're mentioning, uh, that basically they would, they would build some just temperature resilience into uh, into urban housing. And, and to add to that, uh, Nate, if I could, um, the EPA just re- released a report on climate change and children's health and how it could be impacted in the future. One of the points that they brought up was that children learning in hot classrooms and classrooms that don't have air conditioning or it's not cool a lot, cool enough. It, it talked about them seeing a 4 to 7% reduction in their learning ability and potentially the loss of future income because they were so distracted by the heat they couldn't grasp it. And then Harvard did a study that they looked at, I want to say, millions of uh, data from students from maybe, was it 2000? I don't want to say the dates because I don't want to get them wrong, but it was a good chunk of years. And what they found was that when students were in the hot learning environments, their test scores were lower than when they had a cooler learning environment. And you said the the impacts were reduced by 50%. This Harvard study said the impacts were reduced by 78% by just adding air conditioning, not something, not a new conception. It, you know, it's, it, it's mind boggling. It's like, really? The air conditioning? Why can't we get that? One of the recurring themes of the show is that we have the technology, we have the knowledge uh, to already make this problem better and actually to reduce it and eliminate it long term. So uh, it's really important. I want to uh, pull back the lens a little bit. I remember that a couple of years ago, I spoke at your national meeting, the meeting of the American Meteorological Society, AMS. And I, I was really pleased to see that there were a lot of people back then, even two, three years ago, uh, who do the kind of work that you do, who were really interested in in linking climate change to the weather that they were reporting on. And so it makes me think now, uh, when you link a any kind of a weather event to climate change, do you get any pushback or praise from listeners or from management? What What are you hearing as you do these stories? Well... I, I'm careful not to maybe link a single event, um, you know, to climate change, obviously an aggregate, but we don't get pushback. And here's why I'm fortunate enough to work for a station that really is about telling the story of climate change. We have a segment called um, our Eco 9 series where we talk all about the environmental impacts and hazards and about climate change. 
we have a state-of-the-art Econine vehicle that is a hybrid vehicle that can run off of electricity for a very long period of time that drives around to capture those stories. And um, do I get pushback from management? The pushback would be, hey, this climate story is happening. Why didn't you tell it? <laughs> That's the pushback that I would get. Um, also, in our area, just looking at some local studies out of Virginia, um, because the local governments there were trying to figure out how can we get people to make some of the changes. Uh, those people are indeed interested in climate change, uh, and they're interested in doing their part. Uh, one of the things they did ask for was some, you know, financial assistance, if you will, to help facilitate those changes. They are willing. They want the information. Uh, you know, they, they want most people want to do something. Um, and that's why when we also when we cover these climate stories, you don't want to just put out the doom and gloom. Oh, 2022 was the sixth warmest year on record. You want to tell people what they can do. You want to tell them how they can solve it. You know, you want to keep telling somebody there's a problem. There's a problem. Okay, what's the solution? <laughs> so uh, that's another thing that we also try to incorporate um, into our reporting as well. Now, let me say this. Your question is very fair because you will find at some stations where you do have um, certain people that unfortunately do not, quote, believe in climate change. But as you said earlier, it's not a belief system. It's it's science. It's data. It's been 80s in August. It's been 70s in February. I, you can't deny that. It happened. It occurred. Um, and what you're seeing now, if you go to any of the major gas and oil companies' websites, they're now talking about climate change and have done a complete 360 on what was being done 15, 20 years ago. And it's so unfortunate that it was politicized when it shouldn't have been. And I just read that there was a... a um, in 2022, a number of lawsuits came from cities and states against some of the major, you know, gas and oil companies to say that you knew more about climate change and you didn't say that you admitted that and it kind of duped people. So they're now, you know, seeking a lawsuit against some of those companies because of that. So it, it is so unfortunate that it was politicized, but, you know, hopefully people will stick to the science, the data and and let that guide them let the you know the actual data guide you versus the, the politicizing of it well nothing more important to a society than a well-informed citizenry and we're yeah. we're lucky to have journalists like you who are really you know shining a light and 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 pushing it levels deeper you know taking not just the initial information they might want to know about you know how what the temperature is going to be and how you're going to experience it in heat index but also what to look out for when they feel it and and kind of some common symptoms, I guess we'd call them, that people might not initially connect to heat. Uh, that, that's, that's really an extension uh, kind of above and beyond that we'd like to see become kind of more mainstream. Uh, that's the hope. <laughs> that's the hope. So, Mary, I know, I know you've lived in New Orleans, uh, where Born I did residency, and Bruce and I were just out there for, for the wedding. Uh, Congratulations again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We had a second line and everything. I know. So I'm so proud. I was like, oh, my gosh, he had a second line. Uh, so, so I've got to ask, ask you, uh, you know, as the expert meteorologist, uh, just like on a personal, your personal experience, what, what's, what's the wildest or craziest weather that you have personally uh, encountered? Growing up in New Orleans, we never, I've never had a tornado warning in New Orleans. I've had flooding. I've had to be my family rescued from floodwaters. Flooding, yes, okay? I'm sure, Nate, you've seen some street flooding while you were down there. But now in New Orleans, I'm seeing videos of actual tornadoes in the actual metro city. 
that was unheard of when I was growing up there. Unheard of. And we do know that the tornado alley is shifting a bit because of climate change. But to to see that is like, wow. Wow. So it, it, it it's, you know, it's like, really? A tornado warning for the, for the actual city? So yeah, that, that that that's crazy. But I imagine um, New Orleans did look nice uh, with some snow. But they don't know what to do with snow down there. They can cook you something. You want some gumbo? They got it. You need some music? Okay, snow. Sorry, baby, as you probably would have heard them say. You probably heard people call you baby in New Orleans. But it's a thing so, that we say. <laughs> okay, so I'll just tell this story uh, because it's a podcast. <laughs> We're supposed to share personal things. Share, uh, dur- share. Dur- during uh, like first orientation uh, during intern year. We were given all kinds of classes, and one of them was like a cultural sensitivity class. And they they came and told all of us new doctors before we go ahead and start seeing patients. Uh, now, guys, you you aren't allowed to call the patients baby. And <laughs> I thought they they really had to have a class to tell us that we can't just walk in and call the patients start calling them baby and say oh baby this and bit like like this was really formal instruction. Uh, and then sure enough, first day in clinic, I, I see my first patient, you know, walk out the room and the nurse turns to me and goes, oh, hey, baby, how'd your first patient go? And <laughs> Listen, nobody's going to be mad if, you, if you're in New Orleans and you call somebody baby. It's a term of endearment. And it's I mean, I'm not saying it in the true New Orleans way. The true New Orleans way to say baby is not baby. It's baby. That's how you say it. You got to put that, you know, that Cajun twang on it. <laughs> you absolutely do. And I, I never quite developed that twang, but it was the most natural thing in the world to hear from from the nurse. And suddenly it was like, I, I get it. That's yeah, that that's I have to how, I have to cover my natural twang because I, I enjoy a career in broadcast. So I can't have my natural twang <laughs> of New Orleans on there. But yeah, if we were ever New Orleans over a bowl of gumbo, you'd be like, is this the same person that was on TV speaking so uh, you know eloquently about climate change? Like, yeah, that's me. This is, but I'm in New Orleans now, and there's gumbo, so <laughs> there's well, that. So the, the I just got to ask the engine. I got to ask Nate: Were you ever called, at least called, with some respect, Doctor Baby, or was it just Baby? <laughs> no, what 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 I really was called there was Doctor Dina Co. That was my that was <laughs> oh. my nickname. Oh. Oh, do the people of New Orleans give you that? People who were from there, did they give you that name? Mm-hmm. Dr. Dina Because Cole. everybody in New Orleans gets a nickname. You're not going to ever have the long, beautiful name that your mother carefully curated on your birth certificate will never be said in New Orleans. Instead, they're going to find a cute nickname for you that's going to be much shorter and snappy, and that's how you'll be addressed. I, I came to kind of like it after a while, honestly. Uh. <laughs> it is cool. It's kind of hip. I like it. <laughs> Definitely New Orleans has uh, lots of endearment. It does. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you you love my city. I I love it, too. All right. Well, Mary, I'm sitting here thinking about your origin story and how you ended up doing the weather. And what dawns on me from this conversation about heat, but just broadly what's going on in the world right now, I think weather is maybe one of the most crucial forms of journalism you could possibly be involved with. You didn't leave journalism. You went to maybe the most uh, timely part of journalism, in a sense, because so much of what you talk about is really vital, not just for people to get through their day, but also for them to get to see the big picture. So the fact that you do that and do it with such enthusiasm and professionalism (laughs) is really important. And I, I just wish we could... Clone, clone you and get you into weather stations all across the country. Uh, 
let us know how we can do that. And that's my long-winded way of, of saying, yeah, thank you for being here because it's exceptionally important what you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I tease to people all the time. I say weather is the one thing in an, in an entire newscast that impacts everybody. Um, and I think if there's anything that I learned that it's it's all connected. Um, I did actually have a course that I, I actually made up and taught at Morgan State University, which was uh, weather and reporting, teaching journalists how to cover weather topics. Um, as I sit here and talk to you, I'm like, I should have perpetuated that further because I think that should probably be on the regular menu of journalism. In our course of journalism, in our, our studies rather, you do have to take electives. Um, that one, I think, should maybe be required, as in with you guys with, in, in your medical schools, it might you may want to put a weather and health course <laughs> in, in in your studies as well for your respective fields. But um, it has been a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd love to chat with you guys anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Mary. From from the Green Docs perspective, you are setting a national standard. So we'll, <laughs> Thank you. We'll so definitely much. have you back again. Thanks. So at the end of every episode, we like to give uh, the listeners a uh, kind of key steps to being a healthier, happier person. And for this episode, it's a personal heat action plan with three steps. You can anticipate, hydrate, and educate. The anticipate means preparing pregnancy for those summer months where we know it's going to be hot. This is one weather condition we can anticipate. And that means preparing the home for, for those coming uh, hot months. Things like air conditioning where possible, uh, or having fans at least, sometimes having awnings covering certain part of the house to prevent the heat from coming in, having ventilation to let the heat out at night. Uh, we heard from Miri about a lot of the weather apps that can be used to not look just at the temperature, but at the heat index, which is a more accurate sense of what you're going to feel that day. You can plan your day and certain parts of it don't need to be spent outdoors or if they are during cooler times. So, for example, a lot of people like to exercise outdoors that doesn't need to be at the hottest time. And then if you can't necessarily keep the home environment cool, there are in often in cities some cooling centers. Either they're called that or there are places like libraries, movie theaters, other indoor spaces you can use to cool off just for a few hours. Uh, it's better than nothing. Second, hydrate. So my dad always taught me growing up in the Italian family, whenever you see a recipe, double the garlic. That advice applies to pregnant women who are looking at how much water to drink. Whatever you think you have, just double it. That's the right amount. And while you're doubling that hydration intake, get it from some sources that are less likely to have toxins attached to them. So fewer plastic water bottles, even fewer uh, filters that are plastic, or if you like filter the water and put it in a plastic container in the fridge, better to be a non-plastic, like a glass or ceramic uh, container. During pregnancy, your blood volume is going to increase by about 50%. So that goes from roughly five liters before to nearly seven liters by your due date. That's a lot of volume to maintain. So just double the hydration intake. And I'll talk about educate, but Nate, I have to ask, I don't think your dad would tell us to put garlic in the water, would he? You'd be surprised, Bruce. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about education as part of this heat action plan. Uh, and this pertains to you as someone who's pregnant or planning pregnancy and to other members of your household. Because remember, 
that certain groups of people are more susceptible to the heat, as in children, your kids, uh, maybe your parents or grandparents, uh, people with chronic illnesses, people living in those urban heat islands or people without access to air conditioning. Uh, it's important for you and for all of them that you know what the signs of heat exhaustion and heat stroke are because heat stroke can be often fatal and heat exhaustion can wind you up in the hospital, both of which, of course, we'd rather avoid. So we'll have some links in the show notes about uh, more specific information about heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And then thinking of yourself as a member of your community, you can help speak up for healthy births and healthy moms by advocating with elected officials and city planners for uh, more of these cooling centers, for spreading around the uh, the news about where where people can go to get cooled off on really hot days. Also, things like putting in uh, green space in downtown areas uh, and uh, can shrink or reduce the heat gain of an urban heat island. Uh, and there are some places around the country where they're actually taking these kinds of things on very uh, very directly. I know that uh, Miami-Dade County in Florida, they have a chief heat officer. Uh, I know that the city of Barcelona in Spain has a plan to have cooling centers within a five-minute walk of any location in the city. So, so more and more municipalities are taking this up seriously. And then, really big picture, anything we can do to speed the transition to clean energy will help ultimately to stop this problem so we don't have to keep trying to adapt to it. Another way to look at this uh, in terms of our overall approach to heat is in healthcare and how we deal with patients. Uh, one thing that uh, maybe is an analogy is that uh, I live in a nice neighborhood in San Diego, and if you ask kids around here where tomatoes come from, they'll probably tell you they come from Whole Foods. And surely they just don't appreciate the backstory of how that fruit gets to the Whole Foods. Uh, whether or not it was grown with pesticides or other toxic chemicals, how far those tomatoes had to be trucked in order to get to the store. So the backstory is important. But by the same token, healthcare kind of has always fallen short because we view all patients as though they're as though they're the same, as though they all come from the waiting room. But in fact, they all have a backstory. And what sort of exposures they have on a regular basis really make a big difference as far as their, uh, their health and the likelihood that they're going to end up getting sick or getting into trouble. So, Nate, I know you wanted to say more about that. Well, yeah, it's, it's a great analogy. And it brings us to this episode's final push. We need to be practicing obstetrics 2.0. Over the last decade, there have been sweeping, even tectonic shifts in how we care for pregnancy. Uh, now, some of these have been highly visible like rising trends of high-risk pregnancies. These have been driven by things uh, that are widespread in society, like chronic diseases of high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. There have been uh, much more common use of infertility treatments that are things that provide miracles to some families, but also create moms who are older and often carrying more than one baby. During the COVID era, we saw a rapid adoption of telehealth with remote monitoring, uh, blood pressure cuffs, and even feel heart monitors at home, virtual visits being conducted from literally anywhere, uh, you know, from the beach to the car. Uh, and with this new technology came a total restructuring of prenatal visits. Uh, almost overnight, we went from a 14 visit schedule to only needing really four in-person visits for a prenatal schedule. So while these were highly visible, the most widespread change in obstetrics is still largely hidden in plain sight. 
and that's the environment. Specific to this episode, heat. It's almost funny that we can't see it. In other areas, it's it's rather obvious. Uh, we're here in California. We love our wine here. So think about wine, for example. Uh, the most important thing to to wine is the terroir, that French term, that means kind of the aggregate of all the environmental inputs during any growing season, from the rainfall to the soil to the cloud cover and including the heat. And yet we don't recognize that for human pregnancy and our health, uh, our buns are getting burned in a very hot oven. So for the healthcare professionals out there who are listening, it's time to update our understanding of one of the most common things we deal with in obstetrics, pregnant women experiencing contractions. We already know it's driven by fatigue and dehydration. We know the hormonal mechanisms involved in this and how to decrease it. And we know it's getting exceptionally hot. As Bruce mentioned, the patients don't just come from the waiting room or just go back to the waiting room. So we have a responsibility to keep our patients healthy and hydrated before and after they come to the hospital. And for everyone else who's thinking about you know, having a healthy baby uh, in, in our current world, it's time to consider heat differently. It's not just the phrase that we see on the weather report with global warming or climate crisis. We can even put aside for a moment the doomsday projections that often come with this, like the dust bowls and end times. Let's just focus on right here and now for a minute. We should be able to enjoy summer without constantly worrying about trips to the hospital for heat exhaustion for grandparents or for pregnant women, what is often called just Braxton Hicks contractions, because they aren't just anything. These are a warning sign. It's an alarm bell. The oven is overheating and the buns can't take much more. So let's help moms out. Fixing this problem will require both adaptation and mitigation, more air conditioning units and better energy sources that don't overcook us. Basically, we've been stuck kind of debating these solutions long enough, and it's time to cool it and do something about it. It is time to cool it. Thank you, Nate. And on that note, we're going to do something a little different, a new feature of our podcast. We're going to try a mocktail, because why shouldn't we be trying out and learning to enjoy options that we can all enjoy, including women who are pregnant? So alcohol-free drinks, we've got a, a Desois, which is a new brand of aperitif, alcohol-free. And uh, I think the one we're trying is the Purple Loon. Nate, are you ready to try a sip of mocktail and see what you think? Sure am. Reminds me of that commercial where you got Sunny D, the purple stuff. We got some purple stuff here today. <laughs> Let's crack this guy open. Has, has a nice sound when it opens. Got a gentle fizz to it. I smell some a bouquet that smells kind of fruity and complex. What do you think? Try your first sip. I feel like I'm approaching this like a like a wine tasting. Uh, we were just talking about wine, so <laughs> uh, you know, it, you can really taste the root in it. It, it tastes like a uh, like a digestive, like something you'd have after a meal. I don't know. I think it's very pleasant. I can imagine having this and enjoying it on a hot afternoon over ice as I've got it. Yeah, I've got it over ice, too. It, it It's almost like a cola in a way. Like, I could definitely drink this as an alternative to uh, 
probably not not just a Negroni, but also like a, a glass of Coke. And the company Thiswa does uh, suggest that they are making these with lots of healthy ingredients. Not only are they alcohol free, but they have uh, some chemicals that are in the form of adaptogens, which are supposed to be good for our health and our immune system. So there's some things to recommend it, and it tastes pretty good. Yeah, I mean, for for pregnant women who are, you know, told so many things they can't enjoy and want to at least pretend they're having a cocktail, this this would definitely get you there. You, you could you could you could enjoy this beverage and not feel like you're forcing something down that uh, is nothing nothing you know close to a cocktail. And we call it a Shirley Temple 2.0. <laughs> We're doing 2.0 this episode, so yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> All right. We're going to do this again and try another mocktail coming up on our next episode, which will be our Father's Day episode. So that will be dropping our, uh, on or around June 18th, just a few weeks from now. Please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss it when it comes out. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content. Or you can stop by our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word, com where you can read the show notes, find some links that help to flush out some of the things we we talked about today, and you can send us any comments or questions that you have. This episode of Green Docs was written by Bruce Bacar and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of ImaginePodcasting.com. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune into the weather with Mary Marshall, where she'll give you all the tips you need uh, to stay healthy during the summer. Take care. Take care. Stay cool. See you soon. <laughs>